Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's PACASO.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. Now, if, uh, if you've been listening to Weird House Cinema for uh, you know, a while now, you know that we, we always note the musical score. And I, I feel like we've had a, a string of unremarkable scores lately. <laughs> yeah, what did we do? Let's see. Uh, score to Eliminator. Is that wasn't really anything to write home about? I'd say the same for Beastmasters. Beastmaster 2? Why yeah. did I try to make that plural? There, there are, there's only one Beastmaster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Beastmaster 2, yeah, yeah, that, that wasn't so great. And Rob, I, I know your particular weaknesses as well, because while I don't quite feel the same way, I know you hold it against a score merely, merely for having 3D physical instruments. You, you, <laughs> you prefer an all-electronic score. I've literally heard you say before, like, uh, about a movie score, you're like, I guess it was fine, but it wasn't electronic. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there are exceptions to the rule, but but by and large, that's a, a fair assessment. Um, yeah, so I figured on this one, uh, when we you know we, we have different ways of picking out movies, and the this week I was like, I, I want something with a good score. I'm gonna go, let's go with a good score first searching principle here. And so I started looking around for films that um, generally films I had not seen but were well regarded for their score, and it led us to this motion picture it is uh it's also kind of neat because i think it is our first film from australia and new zealand it's an uh, australian and new zealand co-production it is 1982's next of kin well if you pick this title based on score alone maybe we should start by by talking about that score what drew you in about the music well i was you know looking looking at these some of these lists uh saying oh this one has a great score this one has a great score and uh and it was really when i saw who was attached to the score because uh the score on this film is by uh, an electronic artist a pioneer of electronic music klaus schulz who was born 1947 is still alive and i think think still performs or has performed in the last you know few years uh, i'm not you know never sure exactly where you're landing with that um right now during the uh, the pandemic era especially with older uh performers but uh yeah uh, this this guy is a huge deal and while he he isn't tangerine dream 
he was in Tangerine Dream okay. for a very short period of time. Uh, so he is, um, he's an artist that I, I'd listened to his albums before, and, and he hasn't done a lot of score work. I think there are only really three motion pictures that you could say, yes, he did, he did the scores for these films. And so I was, I was excited by, by seeing his name on this one, seeing that it was well-regarded, and then also just looking a little bit into the plot. I was like, oh, yeah, this, is, uh, this looks like it's Weird House territory. So Rob sent me straight on my electronic terminology. Would I be right in saying that this movie is set to the Berlin sound? Is this the 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 famous Berlin style of electronic? Uh, I think so. I'm you know I'm I'm not one to be you know super strict on uh, terminology, uh, but yeah, this would be I guess the Berlin school of uh, of, of of early electronic music. Uh, you know this this is a, a true synth wizard of old we're dealing with here. Uh, you know he's also attached to, to certain groups that were considered kraut rock uh, back in the day. Um, so yeah, he was briefly a member of Tangerine Dream in 1967, but he moved on to uh, Asherah Temple, which is a not a, a group I'm familiar with. Before he went solo, and he's one of these artists that has just an absolutely intimidating discography. Like if you if you were excited by what I'm saying about him, and you go to look him up on one of your music streaming sites, you'll just be bombarded with like a million different <laughs> releases. Well, coming back to the movie itself, I got to say for a movie that you picked purely on the basis of its soundtrack, I thought this was actually a great horror movie. I was surprised I'd never seen this before and that I hadn't seen it, I don't know, included on more uh, uh, lists or, or, or curated uh, pics of, of the great un- overlooked horror movies of, uh, of the 80s, because I, I thought that uh, Next of Kin was just excellent, really carefully crafted, uh, beautifully shot. It's a great-looking movie. Uh, it's got a lot of interesting thematic... Uh, the symmetricality. Uh, I don't know the things that are, there's some things about it that I really want to talk about, but they're hard to talk about without spoiling the ending. I think this mm-hmm. movie has a pretty good reveal in the third act that I don't want to, uh, I don't want to get into the details of until maybe after we do a spoiler warning later in the episode. Uh, but yeah, the, th- this has so much going for it. And I just love the dusty aw shucks Australianisms of it. Yeah, uh, so I, I myself was prepared for this to be like a schlocky movie with a great soundtrack, which is yeah. which that I'm I'm all on board for something like that. But I was also pleasantly surprised by just the quality of everything else about the production. Now, by some definitions, this is an example of Ozploitation. Um, <laughs> you know, because it is a it is a, a post nineteen seventy one R rated film from Australia, uh, and so again, also a, a New Zealand co production, uh, but. Um, I've also seen it listed as part of the Australian New Wave, and I think that might be a little more accurate. I don't know. Like, Ozploitation doesn't necessarily mean that there is something super exploitive about it or that it's exploiting the Australianness of something. Um, but I've also read that, that Australian New Wave films, like, they, they often have this kind of sense of big open spaces, and, mm. uh, you know, they are often tying into something about the character of the Australian landscape. And I do think we see that in this film. There are a lot of, especially early on and late in the picture, there's some wide shots uh, that, that really make you feel a certain amount of isolation regarding these characters and the world they live in. Well, not only that, I think the movie is very smart in the way that it plays with contrast of spaces. There are these mm-hmm. tight, claustrophobic, trapped kinds of scenes in in small rooms, and then there are yeah these big voids in the night or big open fields that we see long shots of as like a car is cutting through them. Um, talking about you know the, the popularity of this film, it, it certainly has its following and uh, and there there's been a as we'll get to you know it's been nicely re-released in recent years i know quentin tarantino was a was apparently a fan of this film hmm. and has mentioned it and uh michael weldon includes includes it in his psychotronic film guides so it, it was on some people's radar but yeah in general this is not a film that uh that I'm super familiar with or remember seeing on shelves anywhere. When I hear the name next of kin, my mind instantly goes to the VHS box cover art of Patrick Swayze in that 1989 film, which I have not seen, but seems to have a great cast. What's it about? I think it's about, um, it's like a crime thing. I think it's like a, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I said, really good cast, but I think it's just kind of a crime thriller. That's my limited understanding of what it amounts to. 
there was actually not a lot I could think of to compare Next of Kin to. Uh, it, it's a very unique film, but you know what it actually reminded me of more than anything else? And I think having seen it, you might at first balk at this, but then come around. My point of comparison is Fulci. Mm. Uh, so not in terms of gratuitous gross out scenes and buckets of blood. There's a little bit of blood in this movie, but nowhere near the, uh, you know, the, the, the just, uh, you know, swimming pools full of gore that you would expect from a, uh, a Fulci movie. So it's not gross in the Fulci sense. It's much more restrained, but the cinematography and camera work frequently brought Fulci to mind. And I think it has to do with the visual fixations and the image drivenness of it mm -hmm. and the kind of slow throbbing dreamlike focus on, on things that are maybe there more for texture or for uh, suggesting a feeling than for being informative about the plot. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely fair comparison. Uh, I, I thought a little bit about Fulci and perhaps Argento a little bit while watching it. Um, yeah. There is also one extreme eyeball close-up of note um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that brings to mind uh, some of these films. Oh, well, I will say that eyeball scene you're thinking of, I think, is directly mirrored in a Fulci movie, though mm -hmm. I don't know which one came first. Uh, but another thing I was going to say to bring it back to the score, actually, is that uh, so Jallo movies and, and Fulci movies, uh, th these Italian horror movies that I'm comparing this to, are not known for having this this German electronic sound in their music, but somehow it fits and and heightens the jalloiness. The Klaus Schultz does, maybe because of the way the music influences the rhythm of the movie. So I was thinking about you know the, the feeling that the the music creates in all these scenes, and it's like you feel the thoughts of the main character Linda kind of moving along at the rhythm of the score. So there are these long warping synth pads when she's daydreaming or wallowing or just like feeling big enveloping emotions. And then like the arpeggiators come in or the, the rhythm picks up when her thoughts pick up the pace and become focused. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's a great description of the kind of music that Klaus Schultz is known for. Like my, my big introduction to him was the 1975 album Time Wind. And I'm not entirely sure how I came across it. I think maybe I was listening, I heard part of it on a, uh, like a warp podcast or something where they were featuring some older music or something. But I ended up picking up Time Wind and it, it's, it's very long form, wonderfully dreamy. One of these things where I, I'm not going to ask Seth to include a sample from Time Wind because you can't, <laughs> you can't have like a succinct <laughs> sample of yeah. Time Wind. You need to listen to at least like a, a 10 minute stretch of it. I listened to it on your recommendation the other day while I was working on notes, and I thought it was just great. Yeah, it was my go-to for uh, yoga music for a while, uh, so it's, it's really good stuff. Now, um, Klaus Schulz has a there is a, he has a wonderful website uh, that I, I believe someone else curates for him uh, with his input. And according to that website, the score here for this film is not a one hundred percent original composition. Rather, it's composed of parts from quote known KS titles, uh, originals and outtakes. So um, that that's interesting to think about in terms of this film because it sounds like maybe it was a situation where they're putting together this film and they're like, hey, we'd love to get Klaus Schultz. And he's like, oh, well, I have some music. You're welcome to have any of this. And then they you know, made it work, mm -hmm. which actually mirrors, uh, I was reading one of the other films that he did a score for was the 1983 German thriller uh, Angst, which was cut to fit his score rather than the other way around. <laughs> so, you know, he's not, he, he, he created the score. And he's like, here you go. And they're like, all right, all right, we'll cut it together and make it work. He also composed the score. I think the only other film he did was 1978 Jaws knockoff by the name of Barracuda. <laughs> and, well, um, how have I not seen that? I thought I'd seen every <laughs> Jaws ripoff. I mean, it looks like it has all the things you would expect uh, from a Jaws ripoff, but it has this really nice score. Um, I don't see a lot of details about the score. Like, it's one of these where I was looking at the movie itself, and it says um, it, it says that the soundtrack is available on Island Records, and there's no, I found no reference to that ever actually happening. Uh, but it looks like he put out a track uh, called Barracuda Drum on one of his uh, compilations that came out many years later. And I was listening to it, and I think this is one of, like, the underwater dreamy uh, tracks from that movie. 
Mm. Uh, his music has been featured, though, in the soundtracks of a number of different films, including Michael Mann's Manhunter from 1986. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And weirdly enough, um, I found him credited on some of the Hans Zimmer scores for the most recent Dune adaptation. And mm. I was trying to figure out what this... So this gets complicated because Hans, Hans Zimmer, apparently, huge Dune fan, and didn't just create one score for the movie, but created like three-plus albums worth of music. <laughs> and some uh-huh. of those uh, have some um, contributors. So I'm not exactly sure what's happening. Maybe they just know each other or they you know, bounced a, a track between the two of them. I'm, I'm not certain. But uh, at any rate, you don't see Klaus Schulz doing a lot of soundtrack work. This is one of three real films that he scored. And I feel like his music does really stand out. Like you say, it really contributes to this this feel, this sort of deeply contemplative hauntedness of things. But also at times, it, contri- it definitely contributes tension. And um, I thought we might play just a sample from it, uh, f- from this uh, score. Uh, this, is the, this is from the track Rhythm Fugue. Get your, get your pulse pounding a little bit there, huh? <laughs> Though I want to stress one thing that I think is interesting is that uh, when, the, when the music picks up the pace in the movie, I don't know which scene this song corresponded to, but uh, when it does, it's not always because there's something like uh, dangerous or thrilling going on on screen where like, you know, somebody's running or there's some threat. Uh, mm-hmm. It's often because a character is like discovering something, you know, a character like suddenly like they're making mental progress, which uh, I liked. Yeah, this is one of those movies that has a a very substantial research portion. Yeah, uh, you know it's very it's very much like a game of the Call of Cthulhu role playing game where you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna devote a large chunk of your playtime to uh, creeping around libraries and checking out old diaries. I agree with that, though. At the same time, that could give the wrong impression and make it sound like this movie has a very complicated plot, which actually it does not. I, I no. would say this is very simple. Actually, it's just well crafted. Th- smart thoughtful simple plot well in that case should we uh should we give the elevator pitch what is this movie in a nutshell uh well i i didn't write one ahead of time maybe i can wing it okay so i'd say something like when uh linda stevens returns home after the death of her mother uh to the her, the rural uh australian village where she grew up she finds records of uh, many strange uh, doings in her mother's old diaries and ledger books, and uh, and then things get even stranger when some of those strange doings appear to be happening again. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, the the old uh, VHS cover for this said, "There's no place like home, bloody home," uh, which <laughs> I think is, okay. Is, oh wait, really uh, well. I think I left out a crucial detail, actually, from my elevator pitch, which is that her her ancestral home that's been left to her after her mother died is serving as a retirement community. It's like a mansion, and they're renting out the rooms to uh, retired people. Creepy retirement home movie. Yes. It's not a, not a subgenre people tend to go wild for, but it's well executed here. All right, let's go ahead and hear just part of the trailer. This is one of those trailers, though, where it's it's a lot of just the music and just some visuals, and I think there's maybe a little bit of voiceover at the end, so we're not going to play it all, but here's just a sample. Will Linda survive the nightmare that threatens her sanity? Fans of gothic horror will not be disappointed. Well, let's talk about, we've already talked about, uh, about Kloss, but let's talk about some of the other humans involved in the production of this film. All right, right at the top, uh, the director's credit and also one of the screenplay credits goes to Tony Williams, born 1942, New Zealand-born director who mostly did documentary work as well as the 1978 film Solo, which I've seen credited as the first Australian-New Zealand feature film co-production. Uh, it's like a, like a romance drama. Huh. I was not familiar with Tony Williams. No. Uh, and like I say, I think his name was mostly made in, in documentary work, and, and he's known for this film. Um, the other screenplay credit goes to Michael Heath, 
this was his first film, but he went on to write a handful of pictures, including 1984's Death Warmed Up, uh, which is, a, I believe, a hypnotism horror film. And then who? He did a 1992 film called My Grandpa is a Vampire, and it stars Al Lewis, yes, Grandpa Munster, basically playing Grandpa Munster. And this is the plot summary from IMDb. Quote, Sent on a trip from California to New Zealand to visit his eccentric grandfather, Lonnie discovers that his grandpa is a vampire. Unnerved at first, he soon discovers that his grandpa is a good vampire. (laughs) So that just that sounds amazing. And the, his, the grandpa, his grandpa is Blade. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, that's that's one way to imagine it. It's Blade, but instead of Wesley Snipes, it's Al Lewis. <laughs> it's Al Lewis. <laughs> anyway, that that screenplay, I think, is you can't really compare. Um, My grandpa is a vampire to uh, Next of Kin, but at any rate, uh, same individual involved in both projects. All right, the star of this picture is Jackie Karen playing the character Linda. Um, I, I'm not sure what her uh, you know, birth date is, what, what her age is, but uh, she is still very much alive. Australian actor who mostly did TV and shorts over the years and became increasingly interested in writing and storytelling. Uh, she has written a number of really cool-looking children's books. Some of them, I, th- I think, have uh, like a nature tie-in. Uh, but she, you know, she makes the rounds, uh, reading from these books, supporting these books. And if you want to catch up on all the stuff she's into, you can find her at jackiekaren.com.au. That's J-A-C-K-I-E-K-E-R-I-N.com.au. And she's really quite good in this, I thought. Um, it's the sort of role we've seen plenty of times before in other horror films, you know, particularly of this period. Uh, you know, a, uh, a female character who is in a strange and or slightly haunting environment, um, kind of experiencing this place physically and emotionally. Uh, but I, I thought it was a real standout performance. I think she's excellent. I think Jackie Karen is sort of the anchor of this movie. She's an extremely likable protagonist. Uh, I was initially tempted to say, as I often do about somebody who's just really likable on screen, that they've got screen charisma or star power. But I think actually her strength in this role is a kind of anti-star power. Mm -hmm. She's a lead actor who uh, has very uh, earnest, down-to-earth human being energy, real person energy. And, uh, and And it makes for a very likable lead role. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll t- we'll touch on her performance more as we proceed, but I think she's definitely a highlight of this film. Um that you know, you could easily see it, have seen this part played by you know, various other actors and they wouldn't have brought the same um uh, likability and um and real life uh quality to the character and to the performance. All right, another uh, actor of note in this is uh, John Jarrett, born 1951 who plays Barney uh this is basically the boyfriend character in this this movie. Uh, he's an Australian actor, possibly best known to international audiences as Mick Taylor in Wolf Creek 1, Wolf Creek 2, the Wolf Creek TV series. I think there's <laughs> going to be a Wolf Creek 3. I haven't yeah. seen any of these. Maybe you yeah. have, Joe, but I understand no, I they're quite nasty in the early 2000s sort of way. Oh, the kind of the, the torture uh, age of movies. Yeah, that's... I, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding of these pictures. Um, and I guess Jarrett was kind of a staple of 2000s Australian horror, as he was also in 2007's Rogue, a giant croc movie. He also pops up in Django Unchained, as well as 1987's Dark Age, which is another killer croc movie. And he's also been in a, a killer boar movie, um, though uh, not the one you're thinking of, Joe, a more recent oh, killer boar movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Speaking of Jaws ripoffs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in this, he basically he just plays a, a boyfriend that she, that uh, Linda reconnects with. The main thing I'm taking away from what you've just said is that there are at least two giant killer crocodile movies that don't have the word crocodile in the title. So I guess I haven't seen them yet, and I've got to look those up. Yes. <laughs> All right, another actor of note, Alex Scott, plays Dr. Barton. He lived uh, 1929 through 2015, an Australian actor with a very long career in film and TV. He had uncredited small roles in such uh, 60s films as Beckett and Gorgo. That was a a wonderful uh, 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 Euro Godzilla movie. Uh, But he also appeared in a credited role. uh, He had a credited role in the 1966 adaptation of Fahrenheit 451. He also appears in Twins of Evil in 1971. 
Oh yeah, that that's a Hammer horror movie that I've seen a number of times. That's one of the the Count Karnstein movies and uh the Karnstein in it, there's a great scene where he's uh he's like dining with his uh with his evil buddies and I think he he raises a glass and he says to Satan. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Not enough, not enough toast to Satan. It's, it's always a, a conversation starter. Um, yeah. He was also in Romper Stomper in 1992. This is the Russell Crowe skinhead movie. Mm. And I know one of our listeners at least will be excited to know that he was also in the abominable Dr. Fibes. I got to see that someday. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Dr. Fibes either, but um, I keep, I keep putting, putting it on the list. Uh, it's one that you can't really stream anywhere right now. You have to... Like rent a copy. So um, I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to it this year. Uh, it, it also is, uh, it was popping up on lists that I was looking at for great or memorable scores. It has a real, mm-hmm. I think, weird kind of uh, jazzy uh, horror score. Uh, okay. So uh, I was listening to part of it and I was like, yeah, this is interesting. I, I really need to get in on the Dr. Fives magic at some point. All right. Uh, a couple other credits here. Chris Murray is credited with special effects on this. Uh, he did special effects on 1979's Mad Max, and he went on to work on a ton of projects, uh, specializing in pyro, it seems. Worked a lot in Australia, as you might expect, including on both Crocodile Dundee movies, uh, Peter Weir's uh, Gallipoli, and Russell McCahey's Razorback from 1984. This, I believe, is the, uh, the, the, the killer boar movie you were thinking of, Jeff. Yes, I have seen this one. It's been a while now, but uh, a few years back, I watched this one, and it's. I remember thinking it is a, it's like a cross between Jaws, but with a pig instead of a shark, and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but set in Australia instead of Texas. I think this is one that you can make a much stronger case for being just pure exploitation, right? Yeah, probably, but also oh, with uh, significant elements of Russell Mulcahy, just things oh, you will yes. recognize <laughs> as like Highlander two isms. Yes. It's got wild boys. Oh man, yeah. We, we've got to we've got to watch an actual Russell McKay film on the show one day. Well, this may be the one. Yeah. All right. Oh, fair warning though. I remember this one being really gross, like it being a very just like wet, nasty movie with uh, un- like uh, I think one of the main sets is like an unethical dog food factory. <laughs> oh. Oh, but uh, one other credit I wanted to mention is uh, the cinematography in this by Gary Hansen. I just wanted to bring that up because a lot of what's great about this film is, I think, the camera work and the framing. Uh, mm-hmm. This this movie has a wonderful look to it. Uh, I think that is what calls to mind the the, the fulchiness of it or the the jalloness of it. Uh, so I looked up this guy Gary Hansen. I don't think I'm familiar with anything else he did. Uh, he was a cinematographer on what looked like a few made-for-TV thriller movies called things like Demolition from 1979 and uh, Roses Bloom Twice from 77. So yeah, I don't really know much of anything else about this guy, but uh, yeah, stellar job on uh, Next of Kin. Yeah, there are plenty of, of shots. There are a lot of like scenes, you know, scenes are allowed to really breathe in this film. And so, yeah, there were a lot of times where I was watching it and I just really liked the way things were framed. All right. Well, as I think we mentioned before, this movie does have a pretty simple plot. And yet at the same time, it has a a more interesting series of twists and developments than most movies we talk about. So I don't want to spoil too much about the third act. Uh, I think maybe this is one where we shouldn't go scene by scene, but maybe we can talk about the setup and then discuss some things that we liked or noticed along the way. Sounds good. And yeah, and if we decide to get into spoilers, we'll put a firm barrier uh, so that folks will know to uh, to stop there and come back later if they uh, they don't want to be spoiled. I thought that the very opening shot w- was interesting because I didn't love it the first time I watched the movie. The first time it was one of my least favorite things in the movie. And then on my second viewing, uh, when I went back and showed it to Rachel, I actually thought it was great because it forms a kind of bookend. I don't want to say too much, but uh, the movie opens with this slow-mo shot. And, uh, you know, that's just like always a, a thing that bothers me. I don't like movies opening in slow motion. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, we get slow-mo of Jackie Karen as Linda looking dirty and exhausted, walking around the outside of a pickup truck in this low frame rate slow-mo. And you're just wondering what has happened. And then you start getting voiceover of this kind of echoing older woman's voice saying to my daughter linda mary stevens i leave all my inheritance and she explains that you know she's leaving her the estate of montclair we don't know what that is yet but that's what the voiceover says i I don't know if you feel the same way i do rob i i generally hate 
movies starting in slow-mo, but I'm going to make an exception for this and say once I got it and had seen the whole thing, I liked it. Hmm. I don't know. I guess I don't really have a firm opinion about it. I don't remember being uh, uh, ever being offended by uh, by slow-mo in the opening of a film, but I also can't think of a, a firm example of it outside of this one. Uh, I feel like it's most common in like moody horror movies that are mm. starting with a kind of like, oh, here's a weird vibe, and then we'll we'll take you back and, and show you how we got here. Mm, yeah, yeah. But then we get a credit sequence, and then we come uh, back to sort of the beginning of the story. So we see a long on-the-road shot cutting through the middle of these golden fields. The road is receding as the camera flies backwards, and I really liked the look of that. Uh, and we we find Jackie Karen driving a truck with a young boy standing up in the bed of the truck. Yeah, and we this is one of those sequences where we get we certainly get that Australian quality of the of the geography here. You know, wide open spaces. Yes, yeah. the The color palette of the landscape too in these shots is really cool because mm-hmm. you have these dry blonde fields cut through by like a stripe of green trees, which I assume are there along the banks of a river that we can't see. And you know, we often complain about driving scenes in movies because they are clearly being used to pad out the runtime of a movie (laughs) that is wanting for content. Don't have enough plot, pad that thing out, have some driving scenes, show people parking. Yeah. Go for it. (laughs) The parking scenes are the worst. (laughs) Oh, they're, they're terrible, but I love these driving scenes. This is how to do it right. They're, they're setting the tone. Yeah. Yeah. If done properly, they can definitely set the tone and, um, and, and, tell you something about the world that these characters are are living in. But also I liked this opening shot of the, you know, the the camera receding along the road over the truck uh, because it got us used to the idea that there's going to be a lot of camera movement in this movie. The, mm-hmm. This this was uh, a movie with a very active camera and it likes the camera pulling away shot. And I, I, I thought that worked very well throughout the runtime. Yeah. So we're seeing Linda driving uh, along on these on these rural roads through this dry landscape, and the the dryness is accentuated by what we're hearing on the radio, which is uh, an announcer saying, "You know, clear all combustible materials from around your home and uh, and remove trash from gutters. Uh, fire conditions are at an all time high," which connects to something in an interesting mm-hmm. way later in the scene. I, I wonder. Uh, I guess we can come back to it, but eventually Linda ends up at the friendly roadside diner and gas station. Maybe my favorite set from the movie, though it has multiple good sets, but this diner is just everything. Yes, this is one of these environments that uh, I, I just, I, I, my eyes were just busy the whole time checking out all the little details and taking it in. And like everything in the film, it's very well shot. Uh, I couldn't decide, though, and, and I guess this speaks to just how well it was put together. I couldn't decide how natural the environment was. Like, is this, did they just basically walk in, clean this place up a little and start filming it? Or did they meticulously put it together? Because, um, it it certainly feels real. It feels like just a slice of late seventies, Australia, something that I don't think I've I've seen on screen before. And of course I I don't have any personal experience with the late seventies, Australia, but it feels so authentic. And yet on the other hand, like the colors popped in a certain way that, that felt that made me think. Well, maybe this you know, there's something very intentional about it as well. Like something about the 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 bright greens that show up. Uh, uh, you know, concerning like the jukebox and some of the other details in the location. To mention the greens, one of the characters who talks in the scene is the cook who's mm-hmm. operating the kitchen, who eventually comes out to talk to Linda. But in the kitchen, uh, of course, one thing is Elvis posters everywhere. It looks like he's got <laughs> at least five Elvis posters up. Uh, but he's also got these green cones that he grabs at various times. Are they supposed to be salt and pepper shakers? I don't know. I guess There's so. Green he's back cones. in the, He's cooking, so maybe that's what they are. But the other thing is I got overly fixated on the game cabinets inside this diner. So one of them was a <laughs> real arcade cabinet called Space Wars. I had to look this up. Have you ever seen this game, Rob? No, I don't remember ever seeing it before watching this film. Okay, so it's uh, it's like a player versus player game where you have these two little spaceships on a star field and you're, you're trying to like shoot missiles at each other. The two spaceships are trying to destroy each other and you can pilot around in space. And I think usually there's like a star in the middle of the screen that acts as like a gravitational pull that pulls you in. And so these ships are flying around. They're trying to shoot each other. And it's it's a kind of thing that I I don't know if uh, th- that really exists much anymore, but it's like an arcade game that only works player versus player. I guess like an air hockey table or something. You, you, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You can't play against the computer. Huh. Interesting. 
But the other thing that really caught my attention is the pinball machine, which is called <laughs> Beatniks. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Beatniks-themed pinball game. Uh, the the back, uh, I don't know what you call it, the back face of it that's got all the art on it. It shows, like, some people whacked out at a crazy party, man. And uh, it's got one guy who looks like Prince Valiant or something. He's got the long blonde hair, but he's clearly... Uh, been uh, been on the T sticks and oh boy, it looks like an exciting machine. Um, you know, it doesn't have any competition out here in the middle of nowhere, so I guess it doesn't matter what the theme is. It's not like folks are going to drive over to the next town and uh, play their sci fi themed pinball machine over there. Yeah, I want to play a Star Wars pinball machine. Sorry, bud, we only got beatniks here. <laughs> But this too, like the machine is, it has this wonderful um, purple and uh, and black uh, uh, kind of uh, coloration going on. So it, it really mm-hmm. pops in the scene, and it's right next to the jukebox. Oh yeah, and we see like a, a kind of greasy outback guy working the jukebox, and then right, I don't know if you noticed the poster right above the jukebox that says "New Polly Waffle," and I, that ring a bell, this, rung a bell the second time I was watching because I was like, wait a minute, later on the kid is offering somebody a Polly Waffle. What the heck is a polywaffle? It's real. I looked it up. It's a type of chocolate bar. It's got a waffle wafer tube inside it that's full of marshmallow, and then it's got chocolate on the outside. Interesting huh. choice. Polywaffle. Yep. Okay. I've pulled up. Uh, I've pulled up an example of this. Yep. That. That's interesting. I mean, it. It. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this has been Australian Anthropology with Robert and Joe. I mean, it looks a lot of images are popping up. It looks quite popular. It looks like um, there may be some sort of an ice cream version of it as well. Mm. Um, yeah, this is definitely one of the, the many uh, instances in this podcast where we'll, we'll, we'll be asking for our Australian uh, listeners to reach out and let us know more about the polywaffle experience. Uh, but when so Linda sits down at the counter in the diner where she's clearly known and remembered, you know, the people start talking to her. She she knows this kid here and, and the cook and she does something interesting. She starts building a balanced tower of forks, like stand, propping them up against each other and making a little uh, uh, a little tower. And the kid asks her about it and she says it's a test of nerves. And I think it's interesting. It, it has a parallel with a scene later on in the movie where she's building a pyramid out of sugar cubes in the same diner, but under very different conditions. Yeah, it's just another example of things in this film make sense. There's an economy of things in this film and an interconnectedness of things in this film that... um, it's not always there in pictures we discuss. You know, I'm I'm so used to there being like a, some sort of plot element that make goes nowhere. There's a dead end road. Um, yeah. That you know, it's something that sometimes it's like a major like four lane dead end highway. And in this this movie, even the little uh, it seems like a, maybe a meandering path will come back and reconnect uh, to something else in a delightful way. You, what do you think about those hamburgers, huh? When uh, the cook comes out with the hamburgers, what, what, <laughs> you, you want to eat those things? You want to put that in your mouth? I mean, they're definitely small town hamburgers. I mean, what, what, what's the competition here in this place? Not too good, is it, Chief? Yeah. Um, so the cook comes out and he says, sorry about your mother, Linda. And they have a little talk. When we find out from Linda's conversation with the cook at the diner that, of course, her mother died recently, that Linda has been away and that she's come back. I think we find out later on in the movie that she has been teaching at a, uh, a school for emotionally disturbed children. And that she's returned after her mother died and that her mother left her the Montclair estate, which is a big mansion where they rent out rooms and it functions as a retirement home. And the cook says, what are you going to do with that big house, Linda? And she doesn't know. So next thing she's, she's driving to the house and we get to see it from the outside. And I love the look of it because it is this type of mansion. I don't know what the what type it's called. I was actually trying to even look this up. It might be a, uh, a new Victorian style, but it's made of brick instead of wood. Uh, so I don't know what it is, but uh, uh, one whole corner of it is just completely covered in thick Ivy or some kind of green leafy vine. And, uh, and uh, I don't know. I love the contrast. The other half of the house is totally clean, just like clean uh, stone, stone masonry. And then this corner is is a forest. It's just is total vegetation. It felt like it meant something. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, like like I say, it feels like there's there's very little wasted detail in this picture. Um, everything kind of works together. Uh, so we meet some of the characters. Linda apparently has a long friendship with one of the residents. I think he sort of uh, helped raise her. It's a man there named Lance who is wearing a blue beret, and he's sort of always going on about the Great War. There's a story he tells where he was, well, I was walking out to the latrine, and then along comes a big whacking shell. And repeat that uh, many times throughout the movie. I guess the other characters that are worth mentioning that she uh, she meets there at the home are, are Connie and Dr. Barton, who both, I guess, are employees who work there. Dr. Barton is a doctor. He uh, he tends to the residents. And Connie is I don't know, she's a general caretaker, I guess. Yeah. And they, they kind of have the role in the film uh, that you encounter in a lot of films you know, like this where uh, she is supposed to come to them and say, I think something is wrong here. And their job is to say, no, there's nothing wrong here at all. Why ever would you say that? Yes. But here's where we start getting scenes of Linda going through her mother's old things. So she's Mm. looking through her possessions as as the synth music is pulsing. She's looking through her mother's things, her account ledgers, her diaries. And, uh, and the music really sort of invites you to wonder what's happening in her mind. But she's clearly because there, there are unanswered questions about her mother. She's trying to figure out what happened in, in the time she was away, I think. And we learn about Linda's mother and her sister Rita trying to solve their money problems by turning Montclair into a retirement home. And uh, there, there are just so many things here where I notice how, how symmetrical the movie is and, mm-hmm. uh, and how well things are set up. Like there's a scene of her – uh, taking her mother's red shawl or cape, whatever it is. And I, I didn't notice it the first time, but she's like, she's, you know, ha- having an emotional connection to this article of clothing, which turns up again later in the movie, but somebody's wearing it. Mm, yeah. And another uh, symmetrical thing I noticed was early on establishing the spiral staircase in the mansion uh, and how it's, you know, it's shot multiple times from above looking down. Uh, These shots are all banging. There's even one later on where uh, somebody is descending the staircase very rapidly and the camera's just like following over their shoulder, but with a weird type of focus that's distorting the edges of the frame. And it's just glorious. Oh yeah. These spiral staircase shots are, are indeed just absolutely beautiful. Um, They're very well composed. Uh, I, I also was drawn in by those. There's also a great scene where, uh, and you included a picture of this in, in our notes here, uh, where she has she's researching. She's in pure research mode, and we see her uh, in the middle of the floor uh, with various boxes of research material around her. There's a lamp in the floor. She's looking at a book, and it's just so well structured. She is not engaged. To be clear, she is not engaging in any kind of supernatural activity in this shot, but it has this feel of seance to it. It has this feel of sort of ritual uh, diving into the past, which of course she is diving into the past here. She is trying to sort of commune with the deceased, uh, though not in a, a supernatural way, in a very real world way. And uh, I, I just, I just love that shot. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's this darkened room with these uh, pools of warm light coming from a few lamps. And then in the middle of the room, she's on the floor. And it's almost like actually the possessions are forming a kind of spiral around her. Mm-hmm. And there's another scene early on uh, that is so good at setting this strange mood. It, it's so weird, but it's the new arrival scene. They find out, oh, somebody, uh, we're getting a new resident tonight. And, uh, and I think Linda has a brief argument with Connie about this. She's like, I I don't know what we're going to do with this place. You know, we don't want new residents and Connie's like, we need the money. And so the new arrival comes in just as lightning strikes a tree outside, the tree falls across the driveway. And so the van that's approaching has to stop. And we see a, a man helping his mother out of the van and having to like carry her over the tree to get her into the wheelchair on the lawn. And then the wheelchair won't move because the lawn's all soaking wet. And it's just very strange, big mood. But another thing that, that really uh, hits about the scene is how out of place it feels to have this driving rain. Because just earlier today, we were watching these scenes where everything looks so dry. And the guy on the radio is talking about the unprecedented dry condition and fire hazard. So something in the weather has changed upon Linda's arrival. Yeah. Uh, but So the new arrivals are uh, Mrs. Ryan and, and her son and uh, – and so we get some weird scenes of them coming in and in the dark in the rain and more scenes of Linda sort of interacting with the other characters, you know, uh, showing her, her friendly and fond relationship with Lance, the, the guy who was in the war 
And eventually we start getting into seeing spooky things. Uh, and the, I would say one of the first examples of this is a time when Linda is uh, alone in her room and she looks out the window at night and it's still, I think, raining outside, or at least it's, it's you know, wet and kind of hazy. And there's a single lamp standing out in the middle, middle of the front lawn uh, out in front of Montclair. And behind the lamp, there's just a, a shadowy figure, a figure in silhouette that looks so cool, but it's just looking up as if looking at her window mm-hmm. and no idea who it is. But it starts to set this unsettling mood of things, just weirder and weirder stuff starts happening. Yeah, and of course, uh, deaths begin to occur. And it's inter- this is where the setting becomes interesting as well, because this is a retirement community. This is a place uh, that, is, that is populated by uh, the elderly. And it's a place where, where death is, you know, maybe not an everyday occurrence, but death is regular enough that this location, this, this world that uh, the characters are moving around in is is more adjacent to death than the rest of the world. Uh, so, which, which I think, uh, you know, adds to the texture of everything rather nicely. Yeah. There's actually a lot of ambiguity in this movie. So you mentioned earlier, I think the idea of uh, this movie has a lot of ambiguity about whether it is ghosts or not. And I love that ambiguity. So uh, Linda reads in her mother's diaries, all these stories she tells about uh, things moving on their own or hearing whispering or voices in the night or, you know, things that start to suggest maybe Montclair is haunted. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of just like eerie encounters that Linda has where it could be that somebody is, is screwing with her or it could be ghosts. And it's really not clear. It could work either way. Uh, So there are like, times when she leaves her room and and then comes back and then a candle that she blew out is lit again and all of the faucets are running and the bathroom is flooding like there's a great scene where she has to go turn all the faucets off as the bathtub is overflowing onto the floor and and that and i love the bathroom by the way because it has this disgusting looking linoleum floor but these beautiful i think the fixtures are green like the the green Mm. tub and sink yeah, these are, these are great bathroom locations, uh, accentuated, of course, <laughs> by the by the fact that we have we have drowning deaths occurring, and oh, yeah. and and that also plays into the ambiguity because these are deaths that could very well be natural. They could be um, uh, suspicious, but they could also play into this idea of the supernatural. You know, this of uh, of of the the haunting of the water. It made me think of uh, some of the the yokai, uh, the Japanese um, uh, spirit creatures that are associated with uh, with hauntings, uh, haunting bathrooms, uh, particularly mm. like elementary school uh, bathroom situations. Uh, that there might be some some supernatural force that lurks in a place like this, and you did very much get that vibe in this film uh kind of a moaning myrtle kind of a thing i guess if you want to draw in a harry potter connection minor character that i just want to mention because uh rachel and i liked her so much uh i think her name is carol the the girl who's going to the party and is having trouble shifting the gears on her car (laughs) (laughs) she's just this lady in a in like a red hat who uh, clearly likes to party uh, and there's a scene. Oh, well, so Linda reconnects with, I think, an old boyfriend. Is that how you understood Barney that like, yeah, yeah, they had been some... together in the past. Mm-hmm. She comes home and they they rekindle. Yeah. And, you know, Barney, Barney's just he's a local boy. Uh, yeah. You know, he's he's just a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a great scene where they they're like out having fun in the woods, and then suddenly Linda sees like a creepy figure standing on a stump, mm-hmm. and uh, and she thinks it's Barney, but then Barney turns out to be behind her, so she's like, well, who's that? And then they turn and look, and there's nobody there. Uh, so you know, the strange doings continue. Yeah. Now there's one stylistic choice that. I thought was very strange, uh, and and I wondered what you made of this. This movie has something I can't recall seeing in other horror movies, at least horror movies post-Psycho, because I I think Psycho established a precedent that if you want to make a jump scare work, you need loud audio, you know, like when Mm -hmm. – uh, when when Mrs. Bates comes out of the room with the knife held high at the at the detective in Psycho, we get the stabbing violins. Uh, I, I just tried to do an impression of them on mic, and I am insisting that we cut that out. So so, but bye bye to me going. Eh, eh. Um, but yeah yeah yeah. So you gotta have like a loud noise, something that accompanies the the visual sting and makes it a total sensory experience. So that's how you really get people jumping out of their chairs. This movie has 
is what I would call jump scares that have no audio at all. They're purely visual scares set to absolute silence or just to ambient sound from the room. Very unique, and it, it seems intentional to me, and I like the effect of it. I mean, being silent like that, they don't function as well as loud scares at actually getting you to jump, to go, ah, but they have a different kind of effect all their own. They're they're more unsettling that way. Like when you when you pan up and see the man's face turn. Uh, Rob, I think you know the scene. I mean, after we've been following the cat, and then there's the the cadaver in the room, and we pan up and see the man's face, and it has been turned so that it's looking directly at the door and into the camera. Mm-hmm. That's a jump scare, but there's no sound. Yeah. Uh, after you brought this up, I started thinking about it. And I um, so I wonder, first of all, it might, might just be purely intentional. This could just be a very intentional choice by the filmmakers. I also wonder how much of it has to do with their musical choice. Because, again, it doesn't seem like it was a case where Klaus Schulz wrote them a score, uh, much less, you know, watch the film and then compose something to fit their cut. Uh, he apparently gave them some music to use and they used it. And you know, if you're going to do a jump scare type thing, you need that very, you need very bombastic music. You need that, the screeching violins or I don't know, maybe like a big wall yeah. you know, sound or a, I don't know, maybe a, like a dubstep drop kind of a thing. And Klaus Schultz is, <laughs> is amazing, but that is not, but that's not really what he does. Um, I, I could be wrong because there's a lot of his music I have not listened to. It's, there's just a tremendous amount of it. And I'm only familiar really with a few of his uh, releases. Um, but while some artists do engage in that kind of thing, like I can think of various sort of industrial noise artists who have you know, very kind of alarming, screechy noises thrown in there. But I, I don't think he has that sort of, of sound in, in most of his work, or at least stuff that I'm familiar with. When you made the wah sound with your mouth, I get what you're saying now, but for a second I thought you were suggesting it should be a didgeridoo. <laughs> well, you a didgeridoo, <laughs> I mean, it could it, it may very well have been done. Uh, this movie needs more Australian sound in it. So like the, the jump scares are accompanied by the opening riff of Thunderstruck. Yeah, I wonder if that might be one of the reasons this film has been more of an underground cult favorite is that it's not as exploitive of, of its Australianness. Like it's more honest and low key in in how it presents Australia as a setting. Uh, and the, there's, there's no didgeridoo. There's no... Um, uh, nobody's being stabbed with a shrimp on the Barbie. You know, it, it, when you if you if you bring your your crocodile Dundee um, uh, 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 e-reader up to this thing, uh, it's not going to go up into the red. <laughs> there's no there's no kangaroos in this movie. Not a single no. one. Oh, but there are koalas. Oh my god, they're they not real feature, ones. Not real ones. But there's a fabulous koala puppet. Creepy koala where, puppet. I thought he was he was cute. Oh come um, on! The guy who's operating it is making it. It's uh, it's like that laughing clown and in the incredibly strange creatures who became who stopped <laughs> living and became mixed up zombies. Except it's right. a koala. Well, okay, it, it it's a koala puppet. Yes, and then later on in the film, during actually a very crucial scene, there um, there there's like a there's some koala stuffies on a display. Mm. I may have missed that part. I don't remember the stuffies. Oh yeah, it's in the finale. Oh okay. I know this because my son walked in while I was finishing watching it. And Ooh. I was like, I, I know, I was, I was like, all right, buddy, something violent might be happening here shortly. And then I was like, oh, no, the koala stuff. And he was like, no. So uh, then he left. <laughs> all right. We've reached the point where we're going to do a spoiler break. But before we do the spoiler break, I'm just going to go and tell you where, uh, about the availability of this film. Uh, right now, as of this recording, at least in, in my part of the world, it is available to stream on Shutter and AMC+. Plus. There's also a very nice Blu-ray edition from Second Sight Films. And if you, if you really want to get into the music, uh, you can buy or stream this wherever you get your digital music. It's also on Bandcamp, but Roundtable put uh, the soundtrack out on vinyl. It has a really nice cover, uh, uh, be a bit of cover art. Uh, so th- these are all wonderful ways for you to seek out uh, the film. Uh, yeah, you can also go to the roundtable.bandcamp.com if you want to find the, uh, the digital album there. All right, let's do it, Joe. Let's jump into the spoiler section. All right. Well, as the uh, the unsettling events continue on, we, we're, we're looking for a culprit, right? Is it ghosts mm-hmm. or is it some kind of human actor? 
And Linda begins to suspect a human, a pair of human actors, actually, uh, Dr. Barton and Connie. Now, mm-hmm. how do we get to them? Do you remember, Rob? Uh, how do we get to them? Uh, how, do, how do we get to uh, thinking that they're doing something nefarious? Well, the main reason would be, like, if somebody's killing people here, and it's obviously not Linda, and it's not ghosts, like, these are the only two other major figures that have access to all the facilities that, you know, are mobile enough. That's the other thing. It's like, you can't really suspect the um, the people who live here, uh, the, the retirement community, because, uh, you know, most of them are kind of uh, infirm and are kind of hobbling around and, and also just seem very nice. It's a very nice place. Uh, and the only characters that we've seen uh, that, that really have kind of a suspicious air to them are... Um, are Connie and the doctor, because they're the ones that are like, no, nothing's wrong here. Why would you think that? And they appear to be conspiring also. Like there are yes. moments where Linda comes across them and they're like whispering to each other. And then they turn and see her and they're like, Oh, Hey, we're doing nothing. And I think clearly the, the film is structured so that we're supposed to suspect them. Uh, once it becomes clear that, uh, that this is not ghosts, we're like, Oh yeah, it, it has to be these two. Well, I think even up until, Close to the end, you still think there could be ghosts involved, mm-hmm. uh, that maybe it's a it's a combination of nefarious human actors and ghosts. Uh, but uh, uh, but Linda becomes especially convinced that Dr. Barton and Connie are doing something evil because she's been reading all these old diaries and ledger books. And she eventually sneaks into Dr. Barton's office and, and finds uh, discrepancies in the records about about uh, deaths that occurred at, at this place. And so, yeah, she she thinks something very nefarious is going on, that, that maybe Dr. Barton and Connie are up to no good. And so there is a scene where she she runs out fleeing from uh, after she, she thinks they've discovered that she knows about them. She flees into the night and she runs off to Barney's meeting of the uh, what the brush fire volunteer brush firefighters association. Yep. <laughs> uh, where they're all sitting in this bingo hall and this guy's giving some strategy session. about I, I don't know what he's talking about. But he's saying like more thinking, less drinking. And uh, meanwhile, Barney is 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 passed out in his chair. He's like asleep holding a beer and yeah. she has to get his attention in the middle of this meeting and everybody's looking at her. Um, and she, she and him go outside and, and she explains the whole situation. So they're going to go back and, and, and get the evidence so that they can figure out what's really going on. I would love to see sort of the dry Australian humor sort of set up for this meeting where they're, they're saying, well, we need to really touch on the fact that we need less drinking. Uh, among our volunteers. And then there's someone's like, well, or, or we're not going to have beer at the meeting then. It's like, Oh no, we're going to, we should have beer at the meeting. It, it sounds <laughs> the, like what the they're talking about though. <laughs> it sounds like what they're talking about is some kind of competition mm. that they're doing. Like, I don't know if there's a, a brush firefighters association challenge that they're going to be competing in. Oh, I don't know. Like may, I, I can imagine some sort of incentive program. Yeah. Like Spotify, get a free beer, something like that. Oh, there you go. But okay, Linda and Barney go back to the mansion together, and this is when things really go off the rails. It's mm-hmm. funny how restrained most of the movie is, and then how uh, how hog wild it goes in the last twenty minutes or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the things that you might expect uh, movies like this to do, uh, it, it gets around to in the last yeah, twenty minutes or so. And part of this is that the film finally reveals what's going on and commits to being like a full psychopath movie. Right. So, of course, uh, they go back and then there's just bodies everywhere. So yeah. uh, uh, Barney goes in first. And but while Linda's waiting for him, she's like, oh, there is a dead body uh, with its throat slashed in the uh, in the water fountain here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it like turns the jets in the water fountain red as the blood right. comes through. And then she runs into the mansion and like, oh, well, Barney's dead now. And uh oh. And so someone is chasing her and she runs to Lance's room and she is able to get Lance away. And I was like, that, that <laughs> felt so good to me. I was worried about lance but lance gets out all right i was still worried about him then because she lets him out through the window and down the fire escape and I, I wanted to be like lance is an old man he does not need to be going down the fire escape linda well uh, better than being left inside with uh with who we're about to find out about so she, yes true she ends up then locking herself in a room somebody has been running around like jiggling the doors trying to get at her we don't know who it is i think she's assuming it's dr barton who, you know mm. chasing her trying to kill her and uh, and so she locks herself into a room, but then we get the the big reveal. A character is sitting at her desk, uh, and the character turns around, and who is that? What? It's Mrs. Ryan, the new arrival who who came in in the driving rain earlier in the movie. Mm. She removes her wig, 
and then makes clear she says, I'm not Mrs. Ryan, I am your Aunt Rita. The Rita mm. we've heard all about in in the diaries that you know her mother's sister and who uh, Dr. Barton had said earlier uh, had had been uh, sent away to a psychiatric care facility and uh, and so what Rita says was uh, actually uh, you, you know she says your mother was the mad one and they put me away to shut me up because I was going to to spill the beans about all the bad stuff that your mother and Dr. Barton were doing. Oh wow! So we have a real Hugo Bart situation here. Yes. Uh, but so like you, you, you're maybe on board with this for a second. You're like, wait, what's happening? But then she, she reaches around to hug Linda and Linda doesn't see, but the camera sees that her hands are covered in blood. Oh. And so she opens the door and into the room comes her terrifyingly creepy son, the guy who mm-hmm. brought her in the van that night of the arrival. And no, it turns out that Rita is there in fact to get revenge and kill people. Right. Uh, so, uh, she, she is the Hugo. Yes, she is the Hugo and her creepy Hugo son. They have murdered everybody. They have murdered uh, uh, Dr. Barton and Connie. They're like in the bathtub in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And there's a horrifying struggle and fight scene. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, Linda is able to knock the the son unconscious and she locks herself in the bathroom. And uh, here's where we get the, the horrible eye in the keyhole oh, scene. Yeah. Oh. Uh, where she locks herself in the bathroom and and uh, Rita is looking through the keyhole in the door saying, I can see you in the mirror. Uh, and what is what does Linda do about this? Well, she gets herself a little I don't know what this is. It's some kind of pick. Yeah, like a like a, the, the, the long, narrow pick end of some sort of a hairbrush type of thing. Yeah. And then whoosh straight through the keyhole. Ugh. Yeah, very, very uh, ugh, for sure, though, though not as gratuitous as eye stabs in a lot of Jala movies. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that that's there's no out out foul jelly or whatever uh, going on here. <laughs> but she eventually, so she flees Montclair. She drives away into the night and uh, ends up back at the roadside diner. I knew we would get back here in the end, mm-hmm. and so the only person there is the kid that she was driving with at the beginning. He says, yeah, my dad's out hunting rabbits tonight. It's just me here. So, you know, she's freaking out. She's saying, lock the doors. You know, does your dad have another rifle here? Um, (laughs) And the kid's just like, why? What's going on? And uh, sorry for uh, I I was saying to myself, I was like, I'm never going to do an attempted Australian accent in this episode. I just failed. Uh, th- this is a, such a great situation, though, because it feels thoroughly uh, you know, like late 70s and early 1980s uh, in a way that not just applies to Australia, but also to the United States, that this would be a time when something like this might occur, where a shop would be left in the care of a child uh, mm-hmm. with access to a rifle. Well, actually, I think it turns out to be a, a shotgun. Like he's oh, is it a shotgun? Okay. Yeah, yes, he's got a scatter gun in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, uh, they lock the doors and she like pushes the space wars arcade cabinet in front of the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she tries to call the police, but the phone doesn't work. Oh so, man, that phone I love too. It's a, it's yeah. a payphone, and it's a big red honking, uh, pay phone. I yeah, don't think the, I'd seen one of these before. It's like the president's red phone, but it's, yeah, it's in the diner. But super chunky. Yeah, it's uh, it's neat. It's another wonderful detail. I just want to go to, I want to be in this space and appreciate all these details. And oh, I loved this final showdown scene. It's so good where she's she's uh, sitting there in a sort of semi catatonic state, uh, uh, building this pyramid out of sugar cubes. Yeah, and you see her going cube by cube, and uh, and then right when she gets uh, up to the ending, she needs one last cube to complete it. Uh, she runs out of cubes in her little bowl, and the kid like shoves another bowl of sugar cubes over to her so that she can finish it. And right when she's putting the final cube on, there is this rumbling as if an earthquake. But what is it? No, it is the creep son in his van driving the van through the front of the diner. Right. Like he crashes through it and then it's like he continues to look floor it. So it's getting closer and closer. And this is where the, it actually hits the, um, uh, the display of, uh, of koala stuffies. Oh <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the kid, uh, the kid tries to, to shoot at the driver, uh, but he's, he misses and he just keeps flooring it. And then eventually the kid calls for help. And, and I, I don't know why this is one of the most satisfying moments of defeating the bad guy I can recall in any movie recently. But Linda just grabs the shotgun and runs straight up point blank and just makes the guy's head explode. Yeah. Uh, uh, did, did you have that same feeling? I was like, it was, it, it's got to be like a new top 10 defeating the bad guy moment. 
Yeah, it's very just like she's done with it. Uh, and, and it's kind of, he has this kind of like sort of help, like he's not helpless, but like there's, you see gasoline leaking onto the floor and there's like a spark. And for a second there, you think, oh, well, he's just going to get blown up in the car and, and she'll have like a hands-off victory here. Uh, but no, she she walks up and she just takes him out with the shotgun. And then finally, uh, she and the kid drive away in the truck as the service station, because it's a diner and a gas station. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I guess the fire from uh, from the leaking gas tank and the wires and everything causes it to explode. Yeah. So there's like repeated explosions of the gas pumps as they're Huge driving away. Huge fireball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then eventually they stop somewhere and uh, and it's the bookend. We see the scene again that the movie began with, with the slow motion of her walking around the car. As did you notice though? As she's driving away though, and the gas station's blowing up behind them, we get to see again that warning about dry conditions. Yeah, the yeah. The, the risk of of wildfire is high. Yeah, so it all feels uh, feels connected in a meaningful way. So yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised by this one. I thought this was a really solid lesser known movie. Yeah, absolutely. I know some people. It looks like uh, have have checked it out and not really knowing what to expect. They might find it a little slow. You know, again, if you're if you're going into this one expecting something kind of schlocky and and exploitive, um, this this film is not going to satisfy you on those fronts. But it's just a very thoughtfully composed uh, and interconnected thriller film. Yeah, with a wonderful soundtrack. And, and I have to mention, yeah, the the soundtrack, uh, the cover to it is a picture of her at the diner table, uh, stacking the making that pyramid of uh, sugar cubes. I love it. Those sugar cubes are going to be in my brain forever. Like. It's such a cool image. Mm -hmm. Go to the store, get yourself a a box of sugar cubes and start stacking. (laughs) I guess so. Well, I don't want to summon a a, a creep with a van. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and close this one out, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Specifically, we'd love to hear from any, you know, Australian and uh, New Zealand uh, listeners who might have some insight on some of the details that we enjoyed in this film or or some insight on like where this where this film belongs and sort of the um, uh, you know uh, the appreciation of, of Australian cinema. Uh, all of that is fair game. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and hey, uh, if you have any recommendations on other Australian uh, films that we should uh, consider viewing, uh, you know, let, let us have it. Uh, we'd love to hear. In the meantime, uh, you'll find other episodes of Weird House Cinema every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're mostly a science podcast with our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Friday, we set most of that aside and we just settle in to appreciate a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 